0: our economy is running on many of these wage workers on these wage workers who are unprotected no social security insecure very low wages and these very small self-employed family units
1: i don't define formal as large and informal as small (laughs) i'm just saying informal means you know, you have productivity, because finally, poverty is about productivity, right? Whether a country is poor, because your regions are not productive, your firms are not productive, and your individuals are not productive, right?
2: Hi, I'm Aisha Mafdia, and you're listening to On the Contrary by India Development Review, or IDR a show featuring unlikely conversations on topics that affect our future. On this podcast, hear differing perspectives from leaders and experts as they help us make sense of the most pressing issues of our time. IDR is an online journal that publishes cutting-edge ideas, lessons and insights, written by and for the people working on some of India's toughest problems. You can check us out at idronline.org. Your host for the show is Arun Maira, a thought leader and author of several books on everything from listening to people not like us, to remaking India. He has the unusual combination of having worked in the private sector, the social sector, as well as the government, where he was a member of India's planning commission. Here's your host, Arun Maira.
3: Today's episode is about the informal economy in India. According to some, it is a drag on India's economic growth and it must be formalized quickly. The contrarian view is that it is the most productive sector of the economy in terms of providing income generating opportunities, and it should be supported. And to help me pull apart this topic, I have Manish Sabarwal, the founder and chairman of Team Lease Services, a pioneering company in India for connecting job seekers with job providers. He is also involved with economic policy formulations in the country and is on the board of the Reserve Bank of India. Manish and I have had many conversations about this very topic. On the contrary, we have Renana Jabwala, my other guest, one of India's leaders in the building of small enterprises in India, especially women's enterprises. She is a longtime leader of Seva, the remarkable network of women's enterprises, which has millions of members in many Indian states. According to some estimates, over 95% of Indians work as informal labor. And so many economists believe that until we formalize this vast informal sector, the lives of Indians will not improve, and the Indian economy will not be able to compete with the rest of the world. In a recent book, The Informal Economy, Examining the Past, Envisioning the Future by Martha Chen and Francois Carré, they point out 60% of people worldwide and 90% of workers in developing countries are informally employed. So India is not clearly alone. And as we look at how labor markets are changing, even in the developed world, especially with technology and the gig economy, as well as different forms of enterprises, We can see that the informal economy is here to stay, yet people seem to look down upon it and think it's a problem of some sort. There seems to be a bias against informal and small enterprises amongst mainstream economists and policy makers. The belief is that formal is beautiful and small is bad. Formal is beautiful and informal is untidy and even ugly. So I think we need to understand the role that the informal economy plays in the lives of the majority of the people in the world. Manish, welcome to the show. You have often said that the problem of the Indian economy is the size of the informal sector with too many small enterprises. So let me ask for your views first.
1: Yes, but that again boils down to management skills, branding. I mean, see, as an entrepreneur in my own life, my first company was a 50 crore company. My second company is a 5,000 crore company, right? So I have learned that as an entrepreneur, there are two kinds of companies you can create, a baby and a dwarf. For me personally, this is not a value judgment. And I have reflected that you know it was the same heartache for me to manage a fifty crore company as a five thousand crore company. It's not like I work harder in team lease. And so you can create a baby and a dwarf. Both are small, the baby is going to grow, and the dwarf is going to stay there. The difference between a baby and a dwarf is not more food. It's not more money. It is in DNA. And now somebody may choose to say, well, you know, I don't want to create a 5,000 crore company or, you know, you travel three days a week. You you have to answer investors. I don't want to do all that every quarter. I have no problem with that. Everybody has to come up with their personal pathway or explanation for what they're doing and why India is poor. I concluded that India calibration needs scale and I have pursued scale or at least spent a large part of my time trying to understand what leads to scale. But that doesn't mean there's one, you know, solution for everybody. I don't view informality as a disease to be eradicated. I just view informality as for many people, it's involuntary. Just like, you know, running a small company for some people is involuntary, for some people is voluntary. Some people, migration is involuntary, for some people, migration is voluntary. And I think you and me agree that if migration is involuntary, then it's not good. But if migration is voluntary, who are we to say anything, right? My only case to you would be is that I completely understand informality as a coping mechanism and Grateful India has it. But there are many people in the informal sector, if you gave them the resources, removed their constraints, they might want to take a different path. And I believe that it is now possible. In the next 15 years, we can do that.
3: Renana, welcome to the show. Can you tell us about the role of the informal economy in the context of India?
0: It's an important part of the economy. And it's an important part of the economy, but also has the maximum number of people who are working there you cited 60% worldwide. In India, it's more than 80%. I'd like to really clarify more on what we mean by the informal economy, because it brings in a whole variety of different modes of work. We know that there are a lot of workers who work, say, in factories, that's what most people know about, but who are unprotected who can be dismissed anytime and basically are working through contracts. And in India, especially through contract labor. There are many other types of wage workers, too. And for women, domestic work is a big issue, a certain type of wage workers In the agriculture sector, of course, you have the agriculture workers and the construction workers, all of which are informal. And when we say informal of wage workers, what we mean really is that they have no types of protection. They don't have social security as workers. They don't have any kind of work security. So there is a real insecurity for these wage workers. The other type, and in India this is 50%, is totally different. Those are the self-employed. And as I said, 50% in India. And most of the self employed are very, very small. The self employed enterprises, or 90% of all enterprises actually, have less than five employees or are small family units. So if you look at it, our economy is running on many of these wage workers on these wage workers who are unprotected, no social security, insecure, very low wages, and these very small self-employed family units, which include people like street vendors, carpenters, small productions, and even in the agriculture area, you can say the small farmers. So that is the informal sector. And you know they're very different. And we need to think of different solutions for each.
3: Manish, Renana explains why the informal sector is essential in an economy. It provides a way up for people at the bottom.
1: I think that the informal sector, in my mind, is a shock absorber. It's been a wonderful shock absorber, but is it a natural state of things? Does the low productivity see the challenge with the informal sector? It doesn't have access to credit. It doesn't have access to training. So it tends to be lower productivity than the formal sector. I don't define formal as large and informal as small. I'm just saying informal means you know, you have productivity because finally poverty is about productivity, right? Whether a country is poor because your regions are not productive, your firms are not productive and your individuals are not productive, right? So for me, this whole, I have struggled with it. I recognize the power of the informal sector as something that has helped India cope but I don't think we should surrender to say that informality is a natural condition. It's a desirable condition. I think we should try and understand why India is an outlier. I mean, the level of informality in India is much higher than other countries at our level of development, is my case. I think we shouldn't make peace with the level that India is at right now. So Rather than make peace, again, a 45% labor force, which only generates 15% of GDP, I think that we need to move out 100, 150 million people off farms into non-farm jobs, primarily because productivity is higher in the non-farm sector, you know. So so they're more likely to get a wage premium in the non-farm sectors. I think he was an idiot, An Narsian economist called Chayanov, who convinced Nehru in the 1920s that small farms are viable because you don't have to pay yourself a salary, your kids a salary, your spouse a salary, and you don't have to pay rent. And he called it the theory of self-exploitation, right? See, most self-employment in India is self-exploitation. You know, you misprice your labor, you misprice your assets, or you you give it for free. So I would submit that I'm a little baffled with how informality will create higher productivity. I think that if we shift it to productive versus non-productive, and, you know, that would be a better way to do it, right? Because, I mean, there are at three levels, individual productivity, enterprise productivity, and regional productivity.
3: Renana, Manish has brought out the concept of productivity, a core concept in development economics. Development requires improvement of productivity. In management theory, the total productivity of an enterprise improves when the scarcest resource of the enterprise produces the most total output. In other words, getting the most of what you have the least of. If capital is scarce, then an enterprise can improve its productivity by producing the most with the least amount of capital. And if labor is scarce, then it can improve its productivity by getting the most from each unit of labour. We say informal enterprises are not productive because they use more labour and produce less output than large enterprises who have more capital and machines. For countries like India, which have a lot of labour and little capital, surely enterprises that use more labour and less capital are those we need more of. Yet, Economists look down upon the so-called informal and so-called unproductive enterprises rather than trying to understand how we can make their work easier.
0: These small units, these tiny family enterprises, they face a lot of barriers and they're not encouraged in any policy way. So just to give you an example, recently we had or we still have the COVID crisis. And the government has announced a lot of loans and some subsidies for MSMEs, medium and small. They also say micro enterprises. I can guarantee that none of these have been going to the self-employed. Why? Because our system is not set up to reach out to them. So the loans are going to uh, registered Enterprises, banks only look at registered enterprises. The banks only know one way to calculate whether this enterprise is doing well or not. And of course, the other problem is many of them don't have you know, books of records.
3: So it seems to me that the large systems, like the government, and as you say, the large banks, would prefer the small to be in a form which enables the large to deal with the small easily and make their own life easier. So it's all about the big fellows trying to convert the small fellows into another form for their own convenience. They're not asking the small, what can we big change in what we do to make your life easier? I find that the ease of doing business, which has become such a big policy thing, is mostly about asking the big people, how can we make it easier for you to do business? And we're not asking the very small, about their ease of living or their ease of doing business. Many small enterprises are run by women for whom living and business is all integrated together. We're not asking, how can we make living easy for you and your micro-business easy for you?
0: I would even extend it further to say that many policies are against them. To give you some examples, many of our self-employed are street vendors. And they have their own little business, they create their own employment, they have a useful function that they do. But each city always plans in such a way that these little self-employed street vendors should be removed. So they're always under threat. So instead of the ease of doing business, they're always under threat. There is a solution. In fact, we have been working with street vendors for a long time, suggested many of the solutions even got a law to protect street vendors. The solution really is that the city needs to plan for these small entrepreneurs.
3: Manish points out that the informal sector is a coping mechanism. It is something we may have to tolerate at this stage of our development. The sooner the informal enterprises become formal and the small become large, the better. The sooner they use more capital and more technology to improve productivity, the better of the economy will be. But development and transitions always take time, at least many decades. So the question for policy is this. During these long periods of transition, When enterprises will still be employing a lot of labor, what conditions and regulations do we need to improve? What changes will enable the ease of doing business for informal enterprises? It's time to take a short break in our conversation. But when we come back, I will ask Ranana and Manish about the labor laws and their impact. See you on the other side.
4: Ever wondered what a day in the life of a ward worker at a government hospital might look like during a pandemic? What about a day in the life of a trans rights activist who fights daily against the prejudice faced by trans, hijra and intersex communities in Goa? Or a day in the life of a relief worker from the missing tribe based in Majuli Assam, the world's largest river island? Through IDR's feature series called A Day in the Life of... We share the stories of everyday people across the length and breadth of the country, doing everything from teaching children with disabilities to volunteering at the farmers' protests. With this series, get a glimpse into what it might feel like to walk a day in the shoes of people who lead very different lives from yours. You can check out A Day in the Life of on www.idronline.org. And now, back to On the Contrary.
3: Economists say that India's labor laws hinder the growth of the economy. They make it difficult for small enterprises to grow. On the other hand, many people who work in the informal sector say the labor laws are not their major problem. They have other, more difficult problems hampering their performance. Renana, it seems our policymakers and the economists who advise them are not listening to informal sector workers and enterprises.
0: If you look at it, there are some, a lot of opposing policies. If you look at wage workers, for example, the policies that have been advocated, that have been pushed are, how do you make wage workers more, quote unquote, what they call flexible? And by flexible, they mean that uh, those wage workers, can be employed anytime and dismissed anytime, in the sense that they can become a sort of army of um, casual labor, which can be picked up and dropped. So there is a strong policy framework discussion that wage workers should be flexibilized, which means you casualize them. And you see it happening everywhere. You see, even in many, many government enterprises, contract labor has become the norm and so has it in many private corporate sector. So there is this whole discussion on flex, making wage labor flexible, and that's one big policy push. And as far as the self-employed goes, there is this discussion on Self-employed or small units are unviable, small units do not use resources efficiently, and therefore it's much better if you have large units. So there's this whole discussion on how do you have large units rather than how to have small units. And I think the policies really are in that direction. There are policymakers who believe that this way the flexibility of wages will or flexibility of wage workers really will boost industry and there are some economists and policymakers who believe that the little self-employed are not useful because they don't pay taxes and because they take work away from the larger or markets rather away from the larger sections so there is this very strong bias large units are good large units promote GDP and flexible labor is good. There's an informal in the formal, which is all the contract labor in the big factories, in the government establishments. And then there is a large informal outside that, domestic workers, construction workers, agriculture labor and so on. So when they come together, they are able to get benefits, some benefits out of the system. For example, during this COVID crisis, uh, you know, many people didn't want them in their houses. They wouldn't pay them even their due wages and so on. But because we had them together, because we had Seva the Union, we were able to call up the employers, explain to them what the issues were, help the women to get some money which would tide them over a month, two months, three months until things opened up. So benefits like that may seem small, but to that domestic worker who had no money in her house, this was a very big benefit. These women do have power in the sense of capabilities, desire to do something, and so on. And we have measured often that when these women get an opportunity, it increases their voice, but it increases their productivity, it increases their income, it increases their access. And access is very important. So it's important that the power I should say, or Shakti of these women be recognized and encouraged, but there is no safety net at all. That is really what we need to put in place. A safety net for every person who works, actually for every family, But and that kind of safety net can be of many different types. It can be a safety net which gives medical, which gives some money in terms of crisis, which helps people to educate the children. There are so many ways that we can make a safety net for people. But we don't have any policies or laws to do that. And I think that is one very important thing we need to do now.
3: Manish, you have explained often how badly our labor laws are administered. There's too much form-filling and bureaucracy and too much inspection and even corruption. Not to mention, some laws are clearly outdated. Labor unions also support your views on this. But they say that the current reforms will not help workers especially those in the small sector. In fact, there is a consensus that the main reform we need is systems for social security, which Rinana is pointing to also.
1: I would make the case that prior labor laws were neither pro-employer nor pro-worker. They were pro-labor inspector. So the dose makes the poison. We don't want zero labor laws. We don't want labor laws which hinder small people and I mean, I have 120 guys in regulatory affairs. No small employer can afford that. So I think absolutely, I agree with you that labor laws are, we don't live in an economy, we live in a society. And the labor law reform doesn't mean zero labor laws, but it obviously doesn't mean what we have today, is my submission to you. I mean, I think that, you know, the only social security we can afford is job creation, you know, Bismarck and others who invented Social Security did it when life expectancy was 31. Life expectancy is now 78. So Germany, I mean, Angela Merkel just said Europe is 7% of the world's population, 20% of the world's GDP, but 50% of the world's social spending and it's unsustainable. So I think taxpayer funded Social Security is a luxury good we have to get up per capita income and our total GDP up and a modern state is a welfare state i don't think the indian state welfare state lacks ambition it lacks resources you know the central government budget is 29 lakh crores states spend about 34 lakh crores and we run a fiscal deficit of 12 to 14 percent of gdp so i think we should have social security but maybe this comes at different stages of development and so Even in the pandemic, people have criticized the Indian state to be stingy, but the U.S. has run a fiscal deficit more than India's GDP because they can. The U.S. Federal Reserve has expanded its balance sheet by $3 trillion in the last sort of 90 days because they can. So I think, you know, social security nets are earned. They are not inherited. Social security is not a mindset. It's actually writing a check. So should we take it out of the 29 lakh crores that we have for central government or 34 lakh crores for state? I wish we could, but anyway, 80% of that money is spoken for. So it's just a math. My question would be is, yes, we should do it, but where do we get the money from?
3: Rinana, can you explain your views on social security further?
0: You cannot totally depend on the employers to actually provide social security. Recently, they have passed a social security code. And one part of the code is for the unorganized workers, where there is a provision for a social security fund for them. There's another aspect to that, which is we don't really know who they are. We have no knowledge of how many, uh, who in broad statistics, of course, we can say, but we can't say that, okay, there are These many domestic workers, they are listed here. This is their names. This is their phone numbers. If we wanted to help them, we have their bank accounts. So there is no registration of workers at all. There is no identification of workers at all. And that's one thing that really needs to be done. We saw that in the COVID crisis. There was no way to reach all those migrants who were going back home because the government didn't know about them we are now really a market economy and as a market economy what people need is income they need some money to uh they can buy help they can buy food they can buy medical help but they need that money we need to have a system where a certain amount of money can be transferred to all these people, and in fact some of the government policies are towards that like the farmers subsidies or the construction worker subsidies and so on. But I think that's a very important area.
3: What I'm concluding from this discussion is that the informal sector of the economy and small enterprises deserve greater respect than they get for the role they play in all economies, even in developed countries. The informal sector has a vital role in developing economies where it provides opportunities to the majority of the people to earn incomes which the formal and more capital-intensive sector cannot provide. There is a consensus that jobs and incomes are the best forms of social security. The informal sector provides many times more jobs and opportunities to earn incomes in small enterprises than the formal sector can. Therefore, it behooves policymakers to listen more closely to voices from the informal sector itself and to nurture it rather than force a formality onto it, which may harm its enterprise. There's also consensus that laws relating to employment need reform. However, the thrust of the reforms must be to provide social security in appropriate reforms, rather than increasing the flexibility of employment any further. Since employment in the informal sector is by definition almost very flexible, and is becoming more flexible within the formal sector also with contract forms of employment. Thank you, Rinana and Manish, for your insights and views. Till our next episode of On the Country with me, Arun Mayra.
2: On the Contrary is produced by Rajita Vora, smarnita Shati, and me, Aisha Mafitya, with additional support from Kuber Batla. This episode was hosted by Arun Mayra for IDR. Production by Made in India. To learn more about the kinds of ideas featured on this podcast, check us out at idronline.org. If you like our show, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also recommend the show to someone you think will like it. Share it with a friend, colleague or someone in your family. Or leave a review on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find out about us. Thank you for listening and see you next week.